Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Dialogues in the Labyrinth, inspired by the first book by Dr. Catherine McLean, who joins us today, uh, called Midnight Water, which is her psychedelic memoir. My name is Eileen Hall, and I am a Scottish Ecuadorian visual artist, creative director, and explorer of inner and outer landscapes. And um, this, in this conversation was really a way for Catherine and I to bring everyone into more the depths of this book that she's so lovingly crafted for people to enjoy. Now, it is in riding, I suppose, this wave of this psychedelic renaissance that we're all currently living in. Uh, I kind of looked this up briefly and saw that there's about 100 clinical research trials taking place across the world uh, as we speak, compared to zero just a few decades ago, because everyone was so scared of drugs uh, or substances that alter our minds. But they have been labeled as the next big breakthrough in our mental health crisis. And so with that in mind, we, we have someone who was involved in that world, uh, in the clinical research world, who has decided to open up the mystery cupboards of her life and bring us right into the heart of her own healing journey uh, with these amazing compounds that hail so much promise. So Catherine, welcome. And thank you for agreeing to do this. Uh, this is a way for us to be able to uh, really share more of the wisdom that you've been able to bring forward uh, through your work as a scientist and also as an explorer of the inner spaces. And so would you mind just telling the audience briefly what the book is about and really why you wrote it and, and yeah, how it came to be? Sure. It's so fun to be in conversation with you, Eileen. Uh, we have been exploring this territory for the last 10 years since we met at Breaking Convention in London, huge psychedelic conference that I ended up attending somewhat unexpectedly the year my sister died. And I was fresh with the um, inspiration from that experience. I was ready to leave my job at Hopkins and one of the seeds that was planted that year was this book, Midnight Water. Uh, the book was inspired by the experience I had with my sister in the hospital. Uh, it was a very challenging experience, as anyone can imagine. Um, but it was an initiation into a much deeper and profound understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to be born, to live, to die. And in the moment she took her final breath, at midnight, I remember seeing around the room all of these half-filled cups of water. And two things kind of went through my mind at the time. The first was a memory from a meditation retreat I had just been on. And the teacher was telling us about how she tried to escape a peyote ceremony, an indigenous peyote ceremony, because she was in too much pain. She wanted out. She was done. And at the break at midnight, which is called the midnight water break, she fled the teepee. She went to hide in her car. And the roadman who was in charge of the ceremony went to find her. And he said, you have to come back because the ceremony cannot continue unless everyone is back in the teepee. And she shared this story at the meditation retreat I went on a month before my sister died. And I heard her lesson echoing in my mind as my sister was dying. You don't get to decide whether to leave the ceremony. No matter how much pain you're in, no matter what is happening, you have to finish the ceremony. And so the book is my way of finishing the ceremony that was interrupted when my sister died. Like, how do I finish the ceremony of life? How do I go on without my sister, my, my mirror, my, the person who's been with me as long as I've been alive nearly? And... You know, Midnight Water is about psychedelics. It's about death. It's about birth. It's about grief. It's about reckoning with our childhood, becoming an adult, what that looks like in the modern era. Um, and it's about family. It's about how we relate to the people who we are born with, uh, born into, the people who we choose as family later on, and the people we give birth to. 
uh, whether it's through actual childbirth or through the ideas in the world, the people that we call into our lives. And, um, you know, Midnight Water, is, it feels like another child to me. It feels like something beautiful that came out of a really tragic circumstance. And I hope that other people are inspired when they read it to embrace the difficulties in their life and make beautiful things out of them. Yeah, amazing. And so again, a little bit of background even between us. So Catherine and I, like you mentioned, met at Breaking Convention in 2013. And at the time, again, you were one of the few females in the clinical research space for psychedelics, uh, working at Johns Hopkins under the guidance of Roland Griffiths, uh, who was doing his end of life studies, and you were studying meditation and psilocybin effects uh, in, in people at the time. And I had, you know, I came up to you because I was still obsessed with, you know, my father had died and I couldn't stop thinking about it. I've had all these crazy kind of mystical paranormal things happen since he died. And then I was convinced that psychedelics were one of the answers for my own grief for my own pain and to help me initiate myself into adulthood in many ways. And so I was so happy when we got to connect and there were so many things in common that we had to share both our pain and our love of life. And uh, we always, you know, we always laugh that the mushrooms must've been having a great old time behind the scenes uh, with all the connections that they brought together between us. And so this, this dialogue, this conversation is also a way for people to to come and be part of uh, these topics that you and I have excavated into over the last decade, decade in different ways. And, um, and had pulled, you know, especially I love your work and the way you have navigated your own story because of the amount of poetry that comes out of it, the amount of wisdom and insight and ways to grapple with both the good, the bad, the ugly, and uh, all the things in between that we go through as humans. And so do you want to also just give people a little bit of an introduction to also um, back then, like what, what you were studying as a psychedelic side, just briefly, you went from studying meditation to then studying um, psilocybin. Sure. So um... I went to a very small, very uh, high-achieving college called Dartmouth College. It's in the woods of New Hampshire. Um, the motto for Dartmouth is Vox Clementis in Deserto, so a voice crying out in the wilderness. And in a way, Midnight Water is part of that legacy. You know, for a long time, I wondered what drew me to Dartmouth. Uh, Dartmouth was my cosmic proving ground, as I call it. It's the place that I didn't understand why I was being drawn into that particular place and time, but uh, what found me there were all of the chemicals that I became obsessed with afterward. And so a big, I think, approach in my life is that if I find something that's fascinating, I want to try it. And if that's meditation, if it's home birth, if it's death, and certainly if it's psychedelic drugs, I want to try it myself and see what happens. Um, and so at Dartmouth, I was busy excelling in my classes. I was training for the heptathlon and track. And then um, a series of injuries uh, basically sidelined me from my athletic career. And what emerged is an equal fascination with the mind and the brain. And I remember telling my undergrad advisor that I wanted to eventually study the neuroscience of ayahuasca in the Amazon jungle when I grew up. That was my goal as, as a career scientist. And he said, you know, stick to monkey brains, they're easier. And, you know, there wasn't really an opportunity to become a psychedelic scientist at the time, or so I thought. Most of the labs, there was Hopkins that had just begun their work in 2000. And there was a Swiss lab that had been doing some work in the late 90s. There was Rick Strassman who had done some work with DMT out in uh, New Mexico. Uh, but really like everyone was kind of scattered, small teams, medical researchers, and none of the research was really getting any public awareness. Uh, the Imperial College studies hadn't even begun at that point. And so my dream was a bit far reaching. And so I ended up landing at UC Davis to study meditation. And that was an amazing experience. It was called the Shamata Project. And it really laid the foundation for why I got hired at Hopkins. It turned out that Roland Griffiths is a longtime meditator. 
So when my email arrived in his inbox, he took it seriously because I was a meditator and because I had done this meditation study. Um, so interesting how the kind of the pathways ended up bringing me to him. But um, when I arrived at Hopkins, the the first psilocybin study had just been published in 2006. I, I graduated in 2009, so just a few years later. Uh, they had been conducting some other basic, uh, it's called psychopharmacology, where you basically look at whether the effects that you're interested in are dose dependent. So does the mystical experience from psilocybin increase the more you increase the dose of the drug? It does. Um, can you blind the drug sessions from an active placebo like Ritalin compared to a, a dose of psilocybin? Uh, you can pretty well blind it. Not as many people have a mystical experience on Ritalin, but some do. Um, uh, can you influence the experience through other factors? And that was where I arrived. We were looking at whether training people in meditation before and after their psilocybin experience could enhance the long-term effects. And so that was called the Spiritual Practices Study. It was privately funded. There was no government research funding at the time, unless you were studying the negative effects of psilocybin. So if you wrote a grant that said, you know, and I'm, you know, paraphrasing, drugs are bad, this drug is bad too, and we're going to show you how bad it is. <laughs> Those are all the grants basically from the government. It's changing now. Um, but yeah, I, I arrived at Hopkins unprepared for what my new role would be. I thought I was going to be a researcher. And yet I became a psychedelic guide. I got to train with two of the best guides in the world, Mary Casamano and Bill Richards. And so I, I, I hold the very unique um, trophy of being one of the only head psychedelic guides in the world who doesn't have a license, is not a therapist, and is not a medical doctor. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. But um, yeah, it was a very lucky opportunity at just the right time before all of the psychedelic renaissance took off. Amazing. And, and so it was that those studies also became quite fundamental to the rest of the research community because they were looking at this space of meditation, mystical experiences, and mental health all combined. And again, what I find really interesting about your story is not only in the last 10 years have you lost a sister, a dad, and given birth to two children, but you also had all these kind of what you would label mystical or paranormal paranormal experiences start happening to you outside of the psychedelic research space. That's right. I mean, you know, at Hopkins, the, the model in the medical world is that the guide or the therapist does not ingest the substance with the participant. The participant is the one who receives a pill with some amount of some compound in it, and then we assist them throughout the day. Uh, indigenous societies would often, the, the healer would ingest some amount of the medicine, the compound, the plants, the mushroom, and use that space that they went into to negotiate, to dialogue with, to understand what was going on with the, with the client. And so um, it's quite a different model. Um, traditionally, it was not seen as a medicine so much as a um, as a method of, of acquiring information and negotiating within the spirit realm. And in those early days, we really had to wear two hats. On the one hand, we had to be completely present in our own state of body and mind in order to sit for other people. We had to become expert guides, even though we didn't have indigenous mentors, we didn't really have a full team or the culture around psychedelics. So we really had to kind of create um, we had to create the model, really. What's interesting at Hopkins is that there was never any training for us as guides to navigate our own consciousness vis-a-vis -vis the participant. And yet what happened for me, whether through natural ability or through my own propensity to want to enter interesting states of mind, uh, maybe from meditation, but I found my own mind changing as I sat more and more with people on psilocybin. I also felt the effects of the psilocybin in the room. Uh, I don't know how to explain that. Um, it might be a form of empathy. It might be a form of like mirroring my brain, mirroring what I'm seeing in the environment. 
And that was fine until my, my mind really started changing. And so there was a pivotal moment uh, where I met a meditation teacher at a science conference. I was there to present my openness findings, which were groundbreaking at the time. We showed that psilocybin can change personality. It can make people more creative, uh, imaginative, tolerant to other people's opinions, open-minded. And I was there with Robin Carhart Harris with his you know, very first brain images that you know, took over the world in a very short period of time, you know, psilocybin in the brain. And I met a meditation teacher. And I remember the teacher said, you know, just go sit down and ask yourself, where am I? I had never, I had never asked that question before. Where am I? I sat down, I started breathing. I was outside by a waterfall. And when I asked, where am I? I, everything exploded. I became nothing. I was shot out into the outer reaches of the galaxy. I saw everything, including my family, the earth, uh, all my ideas, everything that made up my sense of reality, just completely disintegrating. And it was terrifying. And then I remember coming back into my body and, you know, being so happy to have a body, being on earth, there were plants, there were animals, there was the desert. Um, but it really shook me. And I said, well, how can that happen when I didn't ingest anything, when I didn't, there was no previous trigger, there was no thing to occasion that experience. Um, and so when I came back from that experience, that was really when I decided, like, I had to leave this research world. I couldn't hold these two um, understandings. And I needed to understand the personal dimension before I could continue guiding others. Um, and then shortly after that was when my sister ended up in the hospital. So, you know, it's interesting, the, the hospital experience, I drew on everything I knew from Hopkins, how to sit with people going through a difficult experience, how to embrace a mystical experience, how to see beyond death. But the sober experience I had and meditation is what prepared me to leave. And so it's kind of like two different things coming together to inspire me to kind of birth myself out of the academic track that I had been on up until that point. Right. And do you mind telling us a little bit about this openness paper as well? That was so, again, crucial to your understanding of how these compounds work, but also how it interacts with just the general uh, premise of uh, connecting to reality. So openness is a facet of personality. Um, there's certainly debate about how to best measure personality, but at Hopkins, they had used one of the gold standard measures. It's called the NEO-PI, 240 items, and then it gets broken up into five different categories. So the categories that people are commonly familiar with are like extroversion, so how outgoing you are, uh, neuroticism, which is an old term, but it actually just means how moody, anxious, depressed, uh, angry you are, <laughs> basically, and um, agreeableness, which is kind of like, just as you might imagine, you know, are you willing to um, follow rules and order? Uh, do you prefer being obedient and kind of going with the flow? Um, are you perceived as like an easy person to get along with that kind of thing? Um, and then, and then openness. So openness was, I looked at all of the personality measures when I arrived as a postdoc, uh, you know, the data had already been looked at in every possible way. And they had actually concluded that personality didn't change. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Um, you'd think that something would move a little bit. And so I looked at the data in a slightly different way. And then I combined the early study that they had done in 2006 with the dose effects study that came a little bit later. So we had more people. The, the, as a side note, the thing about personality measures is you need a lot of people to see if there's a real effect. So there might be an effect, but you can't see it in 36 people or 40 people. So I took as many people as we could. And what I found is that openness increased, but it was specifically in the people who'd had a complete mystical experience. So the increase in openness depended on the kind of experience you had. It wasn't just good enough to give someone psilocybin. They actually had to have that mind-blowing spiritual experience to be inspired to become more open. It totally makes sense. I mean, this is what the hippies have been saying since the 60s with LSD. And across modern history, there have been different groups that have said, no, I don't think things should be the same way as before. 
like the hippies, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. These all tend to be more liberal, progressive ideas, but it's because our culture happens to be more conservative. And so um, when I found that openness increased, uh, I submitted the paper to a psychology journal, one of the top psychology journals that I had already published a paper in on meditation. And the editor, this is very unusual, the editor refused to send it out for review. And he said, it is impossible for a drug to change personality. The premise is faulty, and I'm not agreeing to send this out for review. It's like, oh, that's not how I thought science worked, but okay. So we ended up publishing the paper in a psychopharmacology journal, thinking, okay, this will be interesting to psychedelic researchers, maybe some drug researchers, and it, it exploded. It, it hit every major news outlet. Bill Maher mentioned it on his late night show at the time. Um, I mean, it was a really huge moment for me because I had just done this, what I thought was a very scientific kind of nerdy statistical analysis. And, you know, what it, what it meant to people, I think, outside of the science world was like, oh, personality, I get that. Open-mindedness, I get that. Creativity, I get that. And it became a bridge to the public. And so, you know, it's hard to say like which papers helped fuel the psychedelic renaissance now. I think certainly Robin's work in neuroimaging, my openness paper and Roland's mystical findings are very responsible for the increased interest that then just kind of kept growing and growing since then. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And uh, so great to see again, the workings of the space itself, because it has been so difficult to quantify because of its mystical qualities or its kind of quite fluid qualities that the psychedelic space can have about it. And so now there's just more and more research, more and more theories, more and more people getting involved and starting to pick apart the mechanism of what this could be from kind of quite secular views of, uh, you know, kind of it's all in the brain, down to these more poetic or spiritual views of it. And, um, and also this rec recognition of the indigenous wisdom uh, that is also being kind of the ancestral knowledge that's, that's been brought forward through centuries uh, to do with these ceremonies and the use of these mind altering substances. This book again, to me is also helping people peer more into the, poetry behind the research, the, the animism behind all of the philosophy or all of the insights that have been gained so far. And again, the, the kind of complex weaving that takes place as you integrate any insights that you've received through that healing space or that mystical space or that psychedelic space, uh, that many layered experience of our psyches. Again, I come back to the personal stories, especially your personal stories, being the place where people can in more detail understand the wrestling that happens, the back and forth, the questioning that am I crazy for believing this, what's going on? And then how you then ground it into a useful, uh, practical way of being in your life. Because, you know, again, as far as I understand in shamanic cultures, really, uh, altering your mind is for practical purposes. So shamans take psychedelics in order to help the tribe navigate practical matters better. So they will know how to get food, how to get water by ingesting various plants. Then they know how to heal people or how to work with the spirits in their lives and in the environment to lead a healthy life. So, but the hard part of our modern lives is because we don't have this communal structure to support our spiritual anatomy or you know our esoteric anatomy which is what we're built with you know dreams is one of the places that you can look at this without going into psychedelics what is that how is it that we can be these kind of very solid beings creating things in this realm but also travel let's call it to other places or other dimensions um, for anyone that finds this taboo, if you've dreamt, that's also a way of altering your states. That's a way of traveling beyond your body. And um, 
now that we see more of this research coming out, especially also around near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, everything seems to be piling up into a more comprehensive array of resources that we can all access to understand our experiences because they will be very varied according to each person's history, cultural uh, makeup, and also where you want to go. Because what happened when you went through your death experience, first of all, with your sister, and also you felt that you were dying in and of yourself as well, it woke you up to a different version of your life, which then became more focused around, again, these bigger questions, your spiritual nature, but also your family, uh, connection to nature, connection to music and art and and other things beyond what you had um, been growing up in. You know, it's interesting when I think back, there are a couple, you know, if you look back across your life, you could see the seeds of certain um, experiences. I didn't learn how to actually grow flowers until the very end of my journey. But I think about people that I met and ideas as seeds. So my mom was my first seed. She taught me how to dream. She always asked me about her my dreams. She taught me how to recollect my dreams, to talk about them. Um, she has a very vivid dream life. I think she was probably a healer or a magician or a shaman in another life. Um, so my mom taught me how to dream. Uh, see, certainly the meditation teachers taught me how to enter a dream space of consciousness through breathing, through energetic work. At Hopkins, I learned how to navigate the space of being near someone who themselves is crossing boundaries. And I think that that's a skill that can be uh, developed. Um, If anything, as people are learning how to be psychedelic therapists, they are learning how to be in that space with someone else who is themselves navigating, but without messing it up, without interfering. And that's a skill. Certainly some people are gifted in that, but you can learn it. And then with my sister, I learned about the death space. What happened after I met you is interesting because right about when I met you was the end of what I call the afterglow of my sister's death. So I was in a space of total love and safety. I felt her energy with me all the time. I would wake up in the middle of the night feeling it. And I thought, this is it. I'm never going to have to do anything hard for the rest of my life. You know, I've got, I've got Rebecca, I've got God, I've got this love and Sometime that summer after breaking convention, it's like everything cracked. And what I understand that to be is on the spiritual journey, you can be shown the light. You can be shown all of this loving, positive energy, maybe first because it's easier. And then the, there's no difference between that and the darkness. We think there is. So that when, it, when, that, when that light starts to show its other face, it feels like it's collapsing, like it's breaking, like I've lost it. And right about that time is when I went to Nepal and I went on a journey through the Himalayas. I released my sister's ashes at a beautiful nunnery close to the Tibetan border. And then tragically at the end of that journey, one of the young Nepalis who had been a medical translator and a guide, he drowned in a river, saving the life of one of the women who were, who was on the journey. And In a way, that death was harder for me than my sister's death because it seemed meaningless, pointless, avoidable, tragic, sad, all of the classic emotions around death. So when I came back from Nepal, I was in a deep, deep depression. And I don't say like depression, like a mental condition. This was like absolute sadness, grief, abject loss. And I couldn't understand how what I had felt with my sister could be related to what I was feeling with the death of this young man. And right around that time was another seed. I met, uh, I had met a woman who was skilled in foraging, crafting plant medicine, collecting plant medicine from the wild. And she, for better, for worse, gave me all of the tools I needed to understand the next 10 years of my life all at once. And I think, you know, some people would disagree with her approach. But I think she thought, you know, this is a life that's about to be lost to this darkness. If she doesn't understand and befriend this, she's she's going to be, you know, in in that. um, It's like imagine if you're walking into a deep wood, you know, and it's like I could have just been wandering 
un- not understanding the shadows, not understanding the, the, the fear my whole life. And so what came out of that experience with multiple plant medicines in a very short period of time was I knew that I could not just keep seeking the afterlife. I couldn't just want to go where my sister was and be in that space dissociated from my body. But I also couldn't just be wallowing in my own misery and pain. And so that at that point is when I started therapy. I started somatic experiencing therapy. And I started exploring some very old memories that I was very confused about, but I suddenly saw them with clarity. And, you know, it's hard for me to remember how terrible that following year was. You, you know, we spent a lot of time together that year. Um, if not for you and a handful of other friends who are equally eccentric, not afraid of death, um, and very patient and loving with me. Um, I don't know how well I would have gotten through that year. You know, there were many points that I reached a point and thought, you know, I can't go any further. I can't take the next step. And then you, uh, my friend, Sarah, uh, our mushroom teacher, Patrick, um, many other people, my therapist, my, my family kind of said, Hey, we'll walk with you. And so if I could kind of think about like one piece of advice for someone who's navigating difficult terrain is just find the people in your life who are willing to take that next step with you. And don't think about 10 steps ahead. Don't think about 10 years from now. Just think about how am I going to take this next step? Even if it's painful, even if I don't want to be here anymore, even if I can't stand the thoughts that are coursing through my mind, all of these memories, all of the concerns, just take that next step and just be willing to surrender to becoming a different person. And so what those experiences in 2014 taught me was that I had to let go of Catherine up till that point to become who I was being asked to be. And now that process took a very long time, but 2014 was when I committed to saying, okay, I'm willing to let go of who I was before this and figure out who it is that I'm becoming. Um, And then that's when I left Hopkins. I, you'd think that it would be obvious, right? I was so busy navigating all of this, but there was a lot of pressure to just go back and just kind of buck up and, you know, make some quick meaning out of my experience, move on, settle down, you know, get a, get, get my head focused on my career, keep doing great work. And I just knew in every fiber of my being that that wasn't what I was here to do on this planet. I'm grateful that I resisted all of the pressure to just return to my old life. Right. And also, you know, at the time we were both through that and covering this topic of trauma, you know, like how it's in us and how we carry it and how it unfolds and how we heal it. Now, you know, I don't, we don't need to go into the depths of such a large subject, but um, within that, you know, it was the same for me in terms of having friends and people that as my life was unraveling, you know, I was studying architecture at the time and also wrestling with leaving this 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 uh, career that I had been in for for a while. And but I knew there was a different life for me. And for me, it also came through these tragedies. It was through uh, uh, the death of a close friend a few years after my dad's where I was like, I need to get out of the life that I feel boxed in. in. I don't know what's happening next, but I just know I need to follow it. And again, you became, you know, I say to people, you've been my, not just my best friend, but my mentor through all of that, because as you were wrestling with the new Catherine and figuring it out, not only just, you know, again, with the death, with the depression, with your new life, leaving this job, and also you know, kind of the trauma journey that you were going through, you were kind of bringing out these nuggets, these kind of very, very interesting ways of seeing this, this, this journey and this mystery, which to me were massively helpful and useful, again, within a culture that wasn't quite um, open to discussing these things. And now I think it's getting much better now that everything seems to be you know, now being covered in the media so much more. But back then it was kind of still cowboy territory, you know, we were all just like, how do you do this? Well, you know, piecing it all together in this very eclectic manner. Because, you know, the thing I find really interesting, again, about your journey, were all the people that started showing up the moment you said, actually, no longer, I'm no longer the scientist clinician. 
you said, okay, mystery, I'm yours. What do you need from me? Then, you know, you've got plunged into hell and you're like, oh, thanks for that. But actually, you know, <laughs> thanks for that. But, um, you know, it helped you face some really interesting hard truths about yourself, about life. But then you met all these wonderful new beings, you know, along the way that became this kind of part of your, your, your adventure was not just all the stuff you were grappling with, but also the people that you were learning from along the way. And again, those lessons have been quite, quite invaluable. And I, you know, I love hearing the stories about all the different people within, within your book as well. Well, and of course we can't forget that one of the people who showed up was my daughter. So mm -hmm. in my very first mushroom experience, and I talk about this, uh, I think it's in chapter two, and then it moves into chapter four with, um, with you, with uh, the journeys with Eileen. But um, a little girl had started appearing to me in dreams, in visions, in different um, psychedelic spaces, the energy of this little girl. And it was a, a version of me that I needed to learn to love and listen to and really hear what she remembered. Um, but it was also the spirit of my daughter, Frances. And so she emerged out of and into my body after that second mushroom experience. And when she was born, I just felt that the universe had given me its most sacred gift. And so it's fascinating that, you know, the universe gave me someone who could understand that mystical territory and also incarnate in a body just like me and literally walk this phase with me. She's now turning eight years old this summer. And I mean, it's the most precious thing. And then, you know, of course, then, you know, once she arrived, she called in reinforcements. She called in her brother because she said, okay, this is, this is way too hard. I don't know if anyone prepared <laughs> us for this. We need, I, I need some help. <laughs> And a lot of Midnight Water, the middle part of the book is about becoming a mother, birth, and exploring that space of creation that could happen after destruction. New friends, new energies, and new ways of understanding um, that I just feel really lucky, you know, that I had all of that help. And again, what an epic tale. Again, you you saw your, you know, you were studying uh, psychedelics at this prestigious university, you know, being hailed and, you know, now they have this big center and that, you know, that was your life until the veil opened up. You were plunged into the depths of this hell realm, this destruction from which you were able to birth your children, you know, and your new life, which again, like I said, you know, you lived in a farm with your husband and your family. There was a lot of getting back to nature and the basics of, of life. And that was the main thing I kept, you know, learning from you and hearing from you is like, don't get caught up in the shininess of the psychedelic space. What really actually matters is that you're a good person, you show up for your family, for your friends, and you connect to nature, which is what feeds us in the first place. So, and and, and again, learning from you this perspective of how there, there's a function to pain and suffering. And it's something that you and I have like really kind of navigated together as friends for a while. And it's been really quite a beautiful as far, and you're right, it's been so hard. And, and I've watched you you know, both of us who have gone through long periods of feeling anxious, depressed, not knowing, but that was our makeup, regardless of psychedelics or not. We, we were both given a, a healthy dose of suffering in our lives. So, so, you know, the psychedelics to us were intense, but actually just as intense as the pain that we've been through. Um, so for us, it was like, okay, I'll try anything. And, and again, I always really admired the way you had faith in people. 
not always the experts, you know, and, and there's a there's a place for having wisdom, guidance and knowledge. It's good for someone to be able to tell us like this is how much, you know, how much of a psychedelic you take. This is the general set and setting, you know, and, and learn about the psychology because we really are birthing this language of the inner space for each of us and what that means within this very chaotic realm. Um, but again, you know, I watch you kind of take everyone down from a pedestal one after another, you know, you were surrounded by people that were easily put on pedestals. Um, I put you on a pedestal before you were just like, hang on a minute, don't do that. You know, like I'm, you know, nobody's got it all figured out. And so you had access to some, you know, you had access to some very kind of well-known teachers of these subjects. I'm not going to mention their names that again, uh, disappointed you in different ways, or you were able to see their humanity. And then beyond that, what again, I admired about the way you saw it, you were also able to forgive some pretty hard stuff. You were able to be like, they are so wrong. I don't like them. They've done this damage to me or they've done this damage to other people. But then you were able to see it from this larger perspective of like, everyone has their flaws. They are human. They're going to mess up. So how do we bring in these values and virtues that are more loving um, to be able to navigate these very painful uh, moments? And, and again, you did that so well with, you know, you know, I really admired the way you handled your your dad's death for that reason. You know, he, you know, you, people will get to learn more about that story in the book, but he was a difficult character for you to handle in your life. And he also rep represented the kind of pinnacle of this American individualized dream of acquiring, you know, kind of wealth, status, individuality, intelligence, like, you know, scientific uh, know-how, like, you, you know, you come from a very well-accomplished family um, that lived the American dream and that that kind of structure started again crumbling around you, you know, and it and your dad was kind of this symbol for that who, you know, caused you a lot of pain, but also gave you so much. And so again, you grappling with how much the, that, that, I don't know how to call it, that kind of capitalist Western system that you grew up in um kind of set you up to fail gave you some things to learn from but yet ultimately again you were able to find the gifts in that and the ways in which you could let that system die in your own life you know you had to exactly. let that system go mm -hmm. yeah so i mean there's so much that there's so the gifts that i have received through having my dad as my dad as a teacher as someone who harmed me as a as a representative of the patriarchy as an archetype as the kingly archetype i mean there's so there's so many ways that i can see him now and he's uh it's coming up on 4 years since his death um i consider to him him to be one of my greatest teachers i couldn't say that you know 10 years ago he was uh he was instead of a teacher he was more like the villain um thank god for all of the friendship and the mushrooms and the other plant medicines, and especially MDMA for showing me that that was a very limited worldview that I had of who a person could be. And, you know, my, my deep, I guess, wish for midnight water is that people will begin the story, really feel the hatred, the pain, the betrayal, all of the difficult aspects of that hell realm, and then see through to the arc of the rebirth at the end. Um, there's no other way I can tell the story except by my own personal journey through it. And everyone will have their own version of that story, um, unless people have a really easy life and then congratulations. But you know, I think a lot of us are, are navigating that territory. How do we, what does it mean to forgive someone? You know, I didn't know how to do that. I had to learn how to do that. And it's not as easy as just saying words. It's not as easy as a therapist helping you say the words in a therapy room. You know, for me, I turned to MDMA. I think it's a great medicine for forgiveness, but even MDMA didn't tell me how. I had to learn how, and I'm still learning how. Um, and you had to yeah, figure it out. Yeah. And, and again, I'd like to stress actually coming back to the point of um, because there's so much glitter around psychedelics everywhere we go, it's, it's kind of again, you're, you're saying people 
are capable of figuring this out on their own with or without psychedelics. You just so happen to use them, but this is possible to be done. And that's one of the main lessons again. And you taught me this because I was doing the same at home. I wasn't going, you know, at the time there was nowhere to access them anyway. So I had to do these things at home on my own uh, with music as the guide and you teaching me, you're you saying, hey, you can do this. And it was your belief in me that so many times held me through that. Actually, your spirit would come into my sessions every time and remind me, rem remember, Catherine says you can do this. And so I would be <laughs> able to. And that just even, you know, I could, I could do a whole podcast on the power of friendship for that reason, because for me, our friendship was as powerful, if not more than a therapist. I didn't feel like I didn't, I didn't have a therapist for a lot of that. I didn't feel like I needed to because my friendships this, then became this place of real understanding and sharing our struggles and sharing our wins together. And then I figured this side, why don't you try this, you know, making it this art and science place, but it's really a socio-poetic space. It's a mythopoetic space. It's not one to be having absolute rules and structures all the time. We need some structure to not like, you know, go into complete mayhem, but actually we're all living into a mystery all the time. So um, again, these anything to do with psychedelics, therapy, um, other people, those are supplements to your own uh, sense of self and where you're going. So this is what I've learned through other great teachers in the space is again, I, you know, my friend Alexander calls them supplements for that reason. And he calls them meditations, not ceremony. He says, you're off to meditate with a supplement to figure out your own gnosis, your own knowing. And, and, you know, between me and you, that's where actually music came into its full uh, glamour power as you know the therapist in the room because you know a lot of these studies kind of will say they use all of them use music and they will say that uh, the music is as important as the therapist in the room and then through your book we could argue it's the only one that you needed in so many places like the music was your therapist oh it's 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 so true i was thinking about that moment and again it's hard to remember the depths of my despair in that moment but at a particular, you know, on a particular evening when I felt like everything had been taken from me, um, I surrendered to an MDMA experience by myself and you had given me a playlist and you just said, I think you had said, turn it on after a certain amount of time, but I didn't listen and I turned it on right away. And so for any of any, anyone who's listening, sometimes that first 45 minutes to an hour of MDMA is hard because if you have anxiety, it'll enhance anxiety, makes you feel uncomfortable. You're kind of like not really sure what's going on. It's not necessarily the best time to listen to music. And so what was interesting was that first hour of music, I was like, this is wrong. This is terrible. MDMA doesn't work anymore. I'm, you know, I'm a hopeless case. And I almost gave up but I just kept remembering my intention. And of course I had brought the most difficult intention to the space, which is I wanted to understand how my dad and I were the same. And so that's a, that's a fascinating question to ask. If someone has harmed you or if they're difficult, ask, how am I like this person? It will show you the parts of yourself that you might be trying to kind of keep in the shadows or parts of you that you don't love or parts of you that you're ashamed of. So I had a hard intention um, I was at the depths of despair. I was turning on the wrong music at the wrong time. And then at some point I just started praying for my idea of my sister, God, a helpful, beneficent energy to come back into my life. And at that moment, I won't reveal cause it's a, it's an amazing part of the book. Um, there was a particular line of a particular song that answered my prayer. It literally gave me the answer. And I was just floored. And in that moment, you can't even describe in words, but to know that, there, that it, the universe is answering you literally with words <laughs> in the exact moment that you're asking for help, it could not have been planned. It could not have been orchestrated. If I had turned on the music when you told me to, those words would have happened sometime else. And so I just, I, in that moment, I felt I am cared for. There is a mystery here that, that does love me. It, it wants me to get through this, but it's not going to, it's not going to drag me through it. It's going to 
you know, walk with me until I'm ready and I understand what's, what's happening. And so that turning point was when I understood to, to, to be with my dad as an equal, I needed to befriend him. I needed to stop hating him. I needed to stop judging him. And I had to imagine if I were in my dad's shoes, what would I need? Even if I was a terrible person, even if I had hurt people, even if I was hard to be around, I would need love and care and friendship. And it's, it was just an amazing turning point. And the last you know, couple chapters of the book is about learning how to befriend the most difficult person in my life before he died. And so it's possible. That's all I can say. It's possible. If there's a difficult person in your life, I promise you, you can learn to love them, befriend them and forgive them. It's one of the ways in which you've impressed me the most as a human being living into that whole philosophy of the, you know, life can be benevolent and you can access that love space or, you know, that place where you can find a resolution beyond what we project as this horrible hell realm. Um, and, and, and again, for, for anyone that's really struggling with really difficult things in their life or stories that go round and round and round, they can watch you, like they can see you do that in the book and then they can see you pulling through. Again, I think, I think about, you know, on the one hand, losing someone that you really love is hard. Losing someone that you've hated, I think is harder because you are left to grapple with everything that you've repressed, that you've hidden away, that you haven't ever been able to talk about. You know, I didn't get to have the final conversation I wanted to have with my dad. I didn't get to forgive him when he was still in his body. But the miraculous thing was that I was able to continue having that conversation with him after he died. And I think that even though it's possible to do that without psychedelics, I think psychedelics allow us to open up to the possibility that, again, life doesn't end with bodily death. We can have conversations with people after they've left us, you know, either um, we're estranged from them. I know a lot of young people now are like, oh, I'll just cut that person out of my life and, and be happy. Well, but you're still carrying the connection with that person into whatever you choose next. So if you don't heal that connection, then it's just like a wound that's just going to keep festering. So this idea of death cutting off, death ending, um, problems ending with destruction, it's, it just keeps going. And so my favorite, actually my favorite, favorite part of the book is the very end where I talk about the aftermath and how writing the book and creating art out of the story was the continuation of that conversation with my ancestors, with my sister, with my dad. And so much healing happened in the course of creating art out of what we had gone through together. And I know you're an artist, you're a visual artist. You taught me how to paint. That's also kind of an amazing thing. I like painted a children's book after I, you know, after I took MDMA and decided I was going to forgive my dad. It's like, how did the universe know that I needed to paint to learn how to do this very like intellectual thing, right? Um, so I learned to plant a garden and grow flowers. Like these are not, this is not the kind of person I am. And so it was just fascinating to me how when you ask a question and then you, and then psychedelics help you get a little bit more open-minded to the point that you're like, oh, maybe I don't need a physical conversation with certain words shared with a person and words coming back. Maybe I need to paint. Maybe I need to write. Maybe I need to make music. Maybe I need to you know, play in the mud with my kids. And that's the, I mean, it's also a bit of a joke, right? I think the mushrooms like to play around with this idea of like, you think you're so serious. You think you have all this trauma, you're crying and belly aching. And like, why is it so hard? It's like, well, stop making it so hard. Do something fun, you know, like plant <laughs> a garden, play with your kids, like make it, you know, paint a painting and don't care who says that they like it, write a whole book and don't care who buys it, which is kind of funny, right? It's like, I wrote a book for myself and I love it so much. And you crafted this beautiful cover that we love so much. And it almost doesn't matter what people think of it because we know its value and we know how amazing it is. So I always just tell people like, find that thing in your life that you're gonna love so much. It doesn't matter what anyone says about it. And then you will have discovered why you're here. 
So now we've come to the end of this particular journey into the labyrinth and given you all just a taste of what it's like and we will be uh, creating other episodes and dialogues with other guests to explore also this idea of the labyrinth a bit more and you'll all get to learn that as we go along. Uh, we hope you'll join us for that and thank you all for joining us today. And so as we have reached the end of this particular dialogue, I hope that your interest is piqued. I hope that you're excited to read Midnight Water and dive into the deep end that Eileen and I can promise you is very fun to swim in once you learn how. And uh, we'll be having some in-person launch events that hopefully some of you will be able to join. So on June 24th, we'll be having a launch event in Wilmington, Vermont, which is near where I live. And it's in collaboration with Psychedelic Sangha, which is a Buddhist-inspired uh, community of psychedelic and consciousness exploration out of New York City. And this lovely uh, vibraphonist named Chris Dingman, who created a bunch of music uh, inspired by his dad's death and his experience helping his dad prepare for death. So there's a lot of... Um, uh, mirrored themes between uh, my experience with my dad and what Chris went through. So we'll be doing readings and music in Vermont. And then I'll be traveling to Bermuda and doing a private launch event there at Spirit House on Sunday, July 2nd, uh, with, uh, in collaboration with an elder friend named Charles Lawrence, who has helped me in so many ways explore the ceremonial space of death and how to lovingly and with purpose enter these liminal spaces to better understand our relationship with our family, our ancestors, and ourselves. On Thursday, July 13th, Eileen and I will be in conversation in London at the Love Shack. We'll be collaborating with uh, the Psychedelic Society and Kate Fleur Young, and we'll be putting on a very exciting and fun night of dialogue, readings, and music, and a bit of socializing at the end. Uh, the Love Shack is a really cool place. They have uh, non-alcoholic mushroom adaptogen drinks and all sorts of kind of fun things for you to try. And if you come to any of these launch events, you'll get a signed copy of the book. Uh, so make sure to RSVP and sign up so we prepare um, adequately to bring enough copies of Midnight Water. And the best place to buy your pre-order copy is my website, katherinemclean.org. You can, of course, buy it through Amazon or bookshop.org, any of these major book distributors. But I would love for you to either pre-order from my local bookstore, which is woman-owned, or to find the bookstore in your area and physically go in and ask them to order five copies of Midnight Water, because then not only will you get a copy, but other people will get to hear about it who might not normally be tuned into this kind of thing. Um, if you prefer listening to books, the audiobook of Midnight Water is coming out in September. You have to wait a little bit. I just finished the recording this month. Uh, I narrated it. And so you get to hear the whole story in my voice, which is quite fun. There's certainly a different uh, emphasis that I put on certain things in the way that I experienced it, which can only be heard and not read. And finally, Eileen's art is also going to be up on my website, art that was inspired by the book, inspired by our adventures together, and especially inspired by water and the ocean. So please head to katherinemclean.org and jump into the deep end with us. Mm -hmm.